there are certainly corrective bills that the General Assembly goes back in time and fixes things that it didn't do complete as it intended. There is no doubt, and that's a process that happens every year at the General Assembly. For example, our state constitution requires that the title of the bill match what the bill does. And every year, the attorney general points out places in which the title didn't quite match what the bill did, either because of amendments or mistakes in drafting. And it is certainly a retrospective law when the General Assembly goes back and says, oh, what we meant back then and what is still the law is what we meant, not what we actually said. That's, I think, an easy example of a retrospective law that harms nobody and that fixes a problem. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. We have the privilege today of having a returning guest. As I mentioned to him in our sort of pre-show, he uh, was a guest back in the era when there wasn't rampant disease and when we all didn't hide behind Zoom. But it's really a pleasure to have back Judge Dan Friedman. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you, sir. So since we last spoke, you have the same job, but a sort of different title or something, as it were. Yeah, the voters approved a constitutional amendment changing the name of my court. After 50 years as the Court of Special Appeals of Maryland, we're now the Appellate Court of Maryland. And doubtless, they tripled your pay and gave you more time <laughs> off. <laughs> no, not so much of that. And in fact, we're not even allowed to get new letterhead or new business cards. We're, we have to finish up the old stuff. I'd be out in the street corner handing out my business cards quickly. <laughs> yeah, I th I, unfortunately, I have enough to get me through my 70th birthday when I have Oh, my. That's, I mean, it's funny. Michelle's 68, I want to say now, too. And it's, you know, I've gone through so many groups of appellate judges in my career now that it's kind of makes me a little wistful. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still a ways away, but I have lots of business cards. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Well, I have a bevy of things to talk to you about. I mentioned, I think last show we had to uh, Justice Houghton, that I didn't realize your expertise in the area of the Maryland Constitution when I last had you on. And I did re-listen to the show, and I really enjoyed the show, and I thought it was highly informative about what you do and oral argument and, and the process whereby you make appellate decisions. And so I, I think it was a great show. But if I'd known, I would have babbled on endlessly about the Maryland Constitution, <laughs> which I dearly love. So a couple things our audience probably doesn't know that we are essentially operating under Maryland's fourth constitution, which was enacted in 1867. That seems correct. very strange to me. Well, it's been amended a number of times since 1867, but it is in fact the 1867 constitution and it was written at a time right after the Civil War. It was written in that era, and it reflects the era that it came from. We tried in 1967 on the 100th anniversary and had a constitutional convention that proposed a new constitution, which was shorter and clearer and well-written and easy to follow along with, but the voters turned it down overwhelmingly. It which seems so anomalous to me. I think a political scientist would tell you when it's an all or nothing proposition, lots of opponents can band together to vote down a proposition. One of the 
it seems odd in today's world, but the clerks of court were uh, important elected officials, and they opposed it because the clerks would no longer be in the Constitution. The same with sheriffs, registers of wills. And those people had lots of political supporters and mobilized their political supporters in ways that I think were unanticipated. As a little plug, I wrote a law review article probably 20 years ago about the changes in the Constitution since 1967, amendments to the Constitution, taking some of the good ideas of the 1967 Constitutional Convention and how it, those had been put into the current Constitution. By coincidence, I read that. <laughs> I try and do a little work in advance. You and uh, my wife may be the only two in the on the planet. I'll have my wife read it when I get home. <laughs> it is interesting how the amendment process works in Maryland. And, you know, we had a bevy of things on the ballot, including changing your court's name. Also, one of the sort of seminal things is the right to a jury trial. And we changed the parameters for that, that you need to have $25,000 or more in controversy it is something, speaking as a plaintiff's lawyer, that I see as a boon to injured people who don't have giant cases. And I do note that the, the insurance industry was vehemently opposed to this notion. And I think that tells you something about it. I guess I don't know the political valence of it, but it's about the second or third time they've right. increased that number. And it's going to keep more cases in the district court, and, and we'll see what happens. I don't get to review district court cases I only get to see circuit court cases. Right, right. Well, I, I can tell you for the nature of the practice I've been involved in for 42 years, it will be helpful because the turnaround time, and I've written about this on our website, I write about all sorts of esoteric stuff that probably our clientele isn't interested in, but I think it will be a boon because the insurance industry, since I started doing this in 1981, has quite systematically reduced the value of cases through a variety of mechanisms, using of house counsel offices, that kind of stuff. And one of the things is delay, because a lot of injured people are not very good. You know, you're in a bad accident. It's not like you necessarily are prepared for it. And so time is something that works against the injured parties and works to the advantage of the insurance industry. And so a lot of times, They'll take a case that belongs in district court, which has a jurisdictional limit of 30 grand, kick it to the circuit court. And especially in this post-COVID era, it might be two years to a trial date. And that tends to wear people down. But that's my own personal aside on the benefits of amendments. But let's talk a little bit about this most recent article, which was featured in volume 82, issue one of the University of Maryland Law Review from December 2022 concerning ex post facto laws. Could you tell us what they are? So an ex post facto law is a law passed by the General Assembly after the facts already occurred and changing the law that governs them is the sort of general definition. A lot of what my article does is looks at the reason that the ex post facto provision is largely thought to apply only to criminal laws that change and make criminal activities that at the time you did them were not criminal, but also suggest that there may be an application to civil laws, which change the nature of our business dealings or our interpersonal, uh, non-criminal dealings and change the legal significance of those. And the case law has uniformly maintained a very strict distinction 
And one of the things that I tried to do in the article is point out that that line may not need to be or may not have intended to be as strict as it is applied. So one of the reasons why they wanted to amend the Constitution back in 1967 is because of the unwieldy language that was employed in 1776 and 1851 and 1864 and 1867. And that brings to mind the provision about which you were writing, which is Article 17 of the Maryland But simultaneously, of course, there's a United States constitutional provision against ex post facto laws that will puzzle this through. Why that isn't applicable and you don't need to worry about the Maryland one is is presently not within my kind of consciousness. But Article 17 says that retrospective laws and a retrospective law is what you're talking about, an ex post facto law, stripping the Latin away from it. Is that fair? Yep. Okay. Punishing acts committed before the existence of such laws. So one engages in a criminal act or in your theoretical realm, even some sort of civil wrong, you know, a breach of contract or something like that. So that retrospective laws punishing acts committed before the existence of such laws and by them only declared criminal, comma. And that's where I think that people are going to read this provision and think that criminality is necessarily a component of it. What would you say with regard to that notion? Well, I think there are good arguments to be made back and forth. It's set off by commas, suggesting that it's describing it. I'm not a a grammarian exactly, but uh, I think that's called an appositive phrase. It is. And it may only be descriptive rather than a limitation. I'm not saying, and I want to be clear, as a judge, I like to write these articles, I like to put these out there, but I think of them as the raw material for lawyers to make arguments, and I don't want to foreclose my ability to, I don't want to have prejudged anything. What I tried to do is point out that it is possible to read that as an appositive phrase, so it's a description, not a limitation. So I'm going to further your argument and agree with you because the way it reads is declared criminal comma, our oppressive comma, and clearly civil laws can be oppressive, unjust and incompatible with liberty. So they almost seem like there's four separate categories of things. You know, criminality is one thing, but these other things, you can be unjust and oppressive and incompatible with liberty through civil actions. And all of it all that you have read before, you are still before the semicolon, may just be a preamble. And then we get to the the, the legend. This sounds like punctuation day on every day. Uh, It is. Wherefore, no ex post facto law might be made, nor any retrospective oath or restriction be imposed or required. So it kind of sounds like a broad provision saying, no, 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 no ex post facto across the board with things. So the question, I guess, is how does that fit in with Article 1, Section 9 of the United States Constitution, where it says no bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed? Well, so the federal constitutional provision is a floor. 
It's a right that's provided to everybody. The interpretation of how that works is provided by the United States Supreme Court, and it is the supreme law of the land. The Maryland Constitution may be more rights protective than that floor of protection. The Court of Appeals decided, for example, and the starting place for this article is Doe versus DPSCS, which is a case in which a fella had been convicted, Mr. Doe, had been convicted of a sex offense. And after he had been sentenced, they added a requirement that he also had to permanently register as a sex offender. So the question before the court was whether that additional requirement was an ex post facto requirement. The Supreme Court in a case called Smith, which came from Alaska, had said on the facts of that case, although people read Smith more broadly, that requiring a registration after the fact was not a violation of the federal ex post facto provision. The Court of Appeals of Maryland, now our Supreme Court, decided in a very fractured opinion in Doe that some of the registry requirements were not a disadvantage to the defendant, but the 2010 amendments were a disadvantage and therefore unconstitutional. But the way the court was looking at it was whether those were civil or criminal requirements. And my suggestion was maybe that's not exactly the right distinction to draw. I mean, it's a fascinating opinion and your dissection of it is, is fun to read because it's clear everybody was using a different sort of intellectual framework to look at this thing and to get to an outcome. And, you know, I don't know that it gives a heck of a lot of guidance going forward to practitioners about how they should look at this stuff. Well, when you get a plurality opinion joined by only three judges, and I think it is correct that all seven who were on the court at the time that Doe was decided have left, there's no binding precedent that came out of it. On my court, we've had a number of cases trying to figure out how to apply Doe since then. And I guess my view is the old Court of Appeals didn't help us very much understand what we're supposed to do. They didn't give much guidance to the legislature about what kind of laws they can pass. And they didn't give much advice to lawyers and judges, lower judges, about how to apply this standard going forward, which is part of why I wrote the article. So are there good ex post facto laws? Huh. I don't know. I mean, that's... Now you're tapping my memory. There are certainly corrective bills that the General Assembly goes back in time and fixes things that it didn't do complete as it intended. There is no doubt. And that's a process that happens every year at the General Assembly. For example, our state constitution requires that the title of the bill match what the bill does. And every year, the attorney general points out places in which the title didn't quite match what the bill did, either because of amendments or mistakes in drafting. And it is certainly a retrospective law when the General Assembly goes back and says, oh, what we meant back then and what is still the law 
is what we meant, not what we actually said. That's, I think, an easy example of a retrospective law that harms nobody and that fixes a problem. I mean, it would be nice to have that in the United States Congress, where people seem to have innocuous sounding bills that do all sorts of fell things. You know, the We're Helping Poor People Act that cuts their benefits kind of stuff. A descriptive title rule was intended to be exactly that, to help the readers read a short explanation of what the bill does and have it actually match what the bill does. Unfortunately, it doesn't work so well anywhere. The titles just get longer and longer to make sure that they cover every possible interpretation. So it's one reason I'm fascinated by the, the 1967, 1968 effort to update the Constitution because, you know, I moved to Maryland. This will show how old I am when I was 19, 1969. So I don't really remember it. I was a kid then. But it's one of those things where you go, wow, so many people were behind it and they put all this effort and they put money into it and it kind of got clobbered. And I have a feeling, and, and I didn't look at the comparable provision to 17, you know, maybe it made the language a little more explicable. It certainly cleaned it up. Although, interestingly, uh, the Constitutional Convention thought that that Latin phrase, ex post facto, was so well understood and so much a term of art that despite that they were trying to get rid of legal Latin, they kept the phrase ex post facto. So I gather, and I'm just speculating on this, that the existence of Latin and being so prevalent in Maryland and, and the United States is, is a byproduct of, you know, the English legal system and probably the Roman one before that, and, you know, who maybe ecclesiastical courts or something. It's just such a strange thing. And there are things that I know the Latin phrases, but there's a million of them that, you know, pro hoc vice, well, you know, you're acting, you know... <laughs> In my opinions, to switch back to that topic a little bit, I work very hard to get rid of as much of the Latin as I can. I don't say that somebody's improper person. I say that they are self-represented. I like that one. I say that my review is, I don't say that it's de novo. It's without, now I'm blanking on a word, without deferring to the work of the trial judge. Because I don't want my readers to be unclear about what I'm saying, but I'm also, our Supreme Court has, over time, described the relationship of the Maryland Constitution to the federal Constitution by use of the Latin phrase in peri materia, with another one of these Latin phrases, it comes from the world of statutory construction. And it suggests that two laws that are similar or arise from the same impulse or the same, they grew from the same ground should be interpreted in similar ways. But I think the reason the Court of Appeals uses it is precisely because it is imprecise and nobody knows <laughs> precisely what it means. Does it mean similar or does it mean exactly the same? And sometimes our court reads it to mean, I'm going to do with Article 21, which are the rights of criminal defendants, right. exactly the same as what the Supreme Court does with the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. And I'm so committed to doing exactly what the Supreme Court does I commit in advance to whatever they're going to decide tomorrow. 
And I think that's a failing on our part. And I don't think that's how we should be interpreting the Maryland Constitution. And so I think the phrase imperi materia is intended to cover a wide range. And one of the things I talk about in this article is not using that phrase anymore because it is imprecise. Well, and language meant different things at different times. It's one of the things that is maddening to me, and this is just my own personal perspective on this, that, you know, the originalists on the Supreme Court, and you're just saying, you know, there weren't cell phones back. So, you know, the, the searches that went on in colonial times were a little different than a search that need be done on the internet or on a cell phone. And so I do find originalism to seem preposterous to me because there's original on some things and not original on others. But I just, it seemed as though the authors of the Constitution and the Articles of Confederation and so forth were forward-thinking people who couldn't possibly have known what 21st century would be like, but would have been fascinated to know. And I don't think they wanted to constrict modern country to, you know, such old-fashioned interpretations. So let me step back, because I wanted to tell you about this, about my article. This arose... I started about 10 or 15 years ago, I was teaching a seminar at the University of Maryland School of Law in theories of interpreting the Constitution. And these were the theories that Supreme Court justices or the academics would use to explain the federal Constitution, textualism, originalism, structuralism, common law interpretation, a whole variety of those And my insight was we ought to be trying those out on state constitutions, not just using the federal constitution, but seeing how those theories of interpretation work. And so my articles, and this is the, I think it's the third of maybe four that do this. I use as many theories of interpretation as I can to try and explain the state constitutional provision. And I think textualism helps and the careful reading of commas and punctuation absolutely helps inform my understanding, but it is not the only source of my understanding. I think originalism can help us understand what's going on in a state constitutional provision. One of the things that when we were going through Article 17, I didn't point out is that last phrase, the stuff about retroactive oaths was about the Civil War, a later edition. So understanding that the two parts of the provision came separated by 100 years and aimed at different things, I think awakens our understanding and helps inform it but it's not the only thing. Sort of what I think I've learned is that each of these interpretive techniques help me and using them all makes me smarter and gives me different insights on it, but no one tool is the sole answer. And the folks who say, oh, I'm an originalist and I will only use this interpretive technique is a way to get stuck in the past and not come up with useful interpretations to present day problems. On the other hand, understanding why they did it often helps us understand how we should interpret it in the future. So I think you know, I'm in love with this idea that using these interpretive techniques helps us understand the interpretive techniques, puts them in 
context, but it also points out their weaknesses and suggests that we can't rely exclusively on one, but you have to use them together to come to the best possible understanding, which then involves the judgment of a judge. So I know from the last show we did together that you enjoy when you leave the bench with your colleagues and go back and start batting stuff around. Do you immediately get into the textualism and all that stuff with them? Or do they know that's, you know, kind of your analytical framework? Well, you know, this is my analytical framework for constitutional interpretation. For different statutes, it works differently. But absolutely, we had a case this week. There was a county ordinance. And we went through every word trying to understand what those words meant and what the framers of that ordinance must have meant. And I think it's, uh, you know, it was a tricky question and one that was great fun. Sounds like it would be useful. Your format would be useful for analyzing something like that, too. And I encourage lawyers to try and think about them. You know, if you're only thinking about it one way, you're restricting yourself you're restricting the arguments you might make on behalf of a, of a client. So we're going to have to wind up in just a minute. But one of the things that has always fascinated me is that the Maryland Constitution, of course, predates the United States Constitution and is a vastly longer document. And I don't think that our public really has any idea of its wonderful history and how extensive it is and how many things it covers that the United States Constitution doesn't. And what a marvelous document it really is. There's a lot to it, and you could see the traces of that whole history through it, most of our Declaration of Rights. Now, there's some provisions that have been added on in, in my lifetime, and but most of the provisions of that Declaration of Rights date back to 1776. The organization of it comes from 1851. There are a few provisions that date from 1864, but not very many. The thick of the Civil War. Uh, right in the thick of the Civil War. That's exactly right. And then most of it comes from 1867. And it is an interesting document. It is not all a good document. They were very concerned at the time. Most of the debates were about the relationship between the recently freed slaves and free people who had formerly been enslaved and the people who had formerly owned property and human beings. And that's what they talked about. If you read the convention debates, that's what they were focused on because that was the issue of the day. And some of the stuff in the constitution, we've gotten rid of the overtly racist stuff, but there's still plenty of reactionary material that one can identify as coming right out of that Civil War period. As a final note, the Maryland, My Maryland song has some extraordinary lyrics to it that I think the public has not been aware of or, or certainly hasn't paid much attention to about the oppressor and being Lincoln. And it's just such an odd phenomenon in the history of this state, which in my view presently is a wonderful progressive place where we do all try and look out for each other and you know, treat everyone with respect. And it's just what a fascinating history Maryland has. Like many of our sister states. Yep. Well, I regret to say it's time to close this version of Everyday Law out, but I'd very much like to thank Judge Dan Friedman for making another appearance. I hope we can induce you to talk about some other stuff in the future. It'd be my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.